This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Hi there, hockey fans, and welcome back to Podcast. This is Stats Man and AJ, Rotowire's hockey podcast show. Friends, I'm Paul Bruno, and you can follow me at Statsman22. My partner on all these pods all year long is AJ Scholz, and you can follow him at AJ Scholz24. That's A-J-S-C-H-O-L-Z-2-4. Well, it, the regular season is uh, concluded, and we now finally know all the 16 playoff participants on uh, today's pod. We're going to preview each of the matchups of the eight first-round series for you, focusing on those players who we think will be on the top lines, top D pairings, and the starting goalies. We're all prepping for our playoff pools this week, so let's bring in my co-host to see what he does to set up his pool strategy. And then, of course, we have a very sensitive issue that we want to touch on as well. So, AJ, off the top, what is it about the playoff pools that you like to do? Yeah, so I tend to just stack whatever team uh, I think is going to make it to the to the finals. Uh, you know, there there are some exceptions. There's other players that uh, you want to utilize uh, based on their production and what you think you can do. Um, but you know, for guys out there that have used Alexander Ovechkin over the years in their pools. When he doesn't make it to even the Eastern Conference final, uh, he's not doing you a whole lot of good. And somebody else that you might have been able to take instead who plays, you know, two additional series beyond that, uh, you know, it's it, you know, it works out better for you, in my opinion, to you know, pick those long guys. I've done pretty well in the pools here uh, that I've been in the last two years because <laughs> surprise, surprise, I'd stack some penguins. So um, but I do think that is the key, right? You need to pick. Uh, in my opinion, as many players as you can from the two teams that you think are going to make it. Yeah, uh, I would even say, uh, AJ, that maybe you go even to the four teams that make the conference final, just because I think there, there's going to be some consensus about uh, the top two teams in the finals more often than not. But uh, And that leaves it pr- pretty thin pretty quickly. So I think, I think you broaden that scope to go to the four teams in the conference final uh, finals and then uh, beyond that to the Stanley Cup. So like you said, get the guys that are going to go minimum three rounds or four because at the end of the playoff runs, you can see in the in the leading scorer stats over the last several years, partner, that uh, it comes down to teams that are 
going that deep and you made a great point you know the star power of some of the guys that that might go get blown out early will tease some some uh, poolies and and they'll look at their roster and say i got the top score on seven different teams here but you know what that doesn't work so a great point by you and uh, so uh, that's that's the way we lean but it's going to be curious to see what what kind of feedback we get from our our uh, listeners and see what they might do in concert with that but i know you wanted to touch on a sensitive topic that reached uh, the ears eyes and ears of people down in the state so i'll give you the, the first nod here yeah, absolutely. We, of course, need to mention uh, the humble Broncos, and, and our hearts go out to the families, the friends, the community, uh, everybody affected by, by this, uh, you know, this tragedy. Uh, unfortunately, 15 people lost their lives, uh, and it's, it's sad, but at the same time, uh, you know, you can bring some solace out of it, too, the fact that uh, people around the world are, are you know, keeping this team and in, in community in their hearts. I saw yesterday uh, a team from the, the German uh, Hockey League, the, the DEL, uh, donated 10,000 euros to, to the Humboldt program uh, to try and help them out. And uh, I know people are have been supporting the GoFundMe page. Uh, I'm gonna. My wife and I are actually going to make a donation ourselves, so I would encourage people to check that out as well. Uh, and it's just a great thing uh, to see the, the, the hockey community come around uh, this team, obviously, you know, the, the little bit we can do won't bring these guys back. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a very sad situation and, and you feel for those families, but, uh, anything that we can do, uh, you know, we're happy to do and, and to support the, the Humboldt, uh, organization. You know, to bring it into perspective, hockey is, uh, everything in Canada. It's the number one sport in this country by miles. And in the province of Saskatchewan, people come from miles around to play, uh, in, in uh, communities that aren't so close together sometimes. And so hockey is really central to the lifestyle there as much as any other place in the world. And, uh, and really, it's part of the fabric uh, of, uh, of the community like Humboldt, Saskatchewan. So it's a terrible, terrible blow. Obviously, the loss of young lives is a real tragedy. And tributes around the world are pouring in. And I, I, I kind of like the way that uh, the, the hockey world has, has rallied around, obviously, the situation. One of the things that they do, they're doing, AJ, I don't know if you caught wind of this, but people are leaving their sticks outside of their homes uh, as a tribute to the the, the deceased. And uh, I, I just think it's, it's a neat thing the way that, that the hockey world does rally around this situation i mean the parallel has been drawn and i'll i won't go too deep into this but the whole gun issue in the states uh, is front and center and 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 yet uh, the tragedies that happen all over the world for that matter in the schools and so on uh, i haven't seen rallying like this in in that way so i i think the hockey community has done it in a very special way to send a very clear message of support and uh, i i just like the way they did it in such a unique fashion Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I did, you know, the, the put your sticks out uh, campaign. Uh, I do think it, it is a really uh, kind of simple gesture that people can make, uh, you know, to show your support for those communities. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll get back to the rest of the show. I'll just remind our listeners that throughout the week, if you have questions uh, about your pools, you know, if you're, if you're stuck between two guys and, and you're like, oh, do I take this one? Do I take that one? Feel free to reach out to us. Uh, if you have questions about just hockey in general, you know, something that you're seeing in a game and curious what our take is, we're happy to answer those. Just tweet at us uh, at any time throughout the week. As Paul said, you can follow me at AJ Scholes24, and you can follow Paul, the Statsman, at Statsman22.
All right, well, it's time to go through each of the eight series in the opening round, and we'll begin with the Central Division. The way we do it, did it in the past is what we'll do today, AJ, on the show, and that is go through the regular season records. Uh, you and I will banter back and forth about the top lines, the top two D pairings, the goalie matchup, and then finally come up with our predictions. So let's get into this series where the top team in the uh, Western Conference, the Nashville Predators, face uh, a team that neither one of us really thought was going to get to the postseason I don't think in the Colorado Colorado Avalanche the regular season was kind of skewed in Nashville's favor as one might expect they won it three to nothing and uh, let's take a look at the rosters here AJ in terms of the Nashville depth chart uh, they did tinker around with their top line but they have settled on a unit that I think makes a lot of sense here in terms of speed and they're putting pressure on Ryan Johansson to be that number one center that most teams have uh, that they can point to. In fact, they have a nice two, one-two punch. It's just getting uh, Johansson and Torres to play well at the same time. That's been a bit of an issue offensively, but they certainly have a lot of speed and firepower on the wings. I like the left side, particularly with Forsberg and Fiala, two of the quickest forwards who both have great hands. On the right side, a little bit lesser in in that respect with Victor Arvidsson and Craig Smith. That's the way I see the top six breaking down. Uh, what's your view on, on the forward lines here? Yeah, I agree with everything you said there, Paul. Um, you know, obviously, I think the center position is going to be the key here. Johansson and Terrace are one of the best one-two punches in the league. Uh, they brought in Kyle Terrace as kind of an upgrade for Nick Bonino. Uh, and I, I echo your sentiments as well. The left side seems solid in Forsberg and Fiala. Uh, the right side, a little bit more of a question mark. You know, Ryan Hartman could certainly uh, compete for some time here in, in a top six role. Uh, Colton Sissons could move over from the left side to the right if, if Arvison and Smith aren't aren't um, you know firing on all cylinders there so they do at least have some options if those guys aren't working out um, but I do think that'll kind of be the crucial piece uh, for this team is how that that right wing in the the top two lines shakes out yeah and in terms of the special teams here we can note that the power plays are pretty even uh, Colorado seven tenths of a percentage point higher at 21.9 and they're penalty killing is a little bit superior to what Nashville's done in the regular season so uh, we got to stress the fact that special teams are a key thing uh, at playoff time and you can give a bit of an edge to Colorado based on those numbers but it's such a such a narrow margin in both cases that I don't think it's going to tip the charts in either way. What about the defense pairings here, AJ? What do you see on the Nashville's top pairings and Colorado? Let's take a look at that. Yeah, so I mean, Nashville is known for their defense, right? And so I think uh, there, this is where you know it, when the rubber meets the road, this is where Nashville really outpaces anybody in the league. To be honest with you, uh, Roman Yossi and Ryan Ellis will be the top two, and then you got Matias Ekholm and PK Subban. Uh, you know, if they really needed to get some offensive options here, if they were behind in a game, they obviously could put Yossi and Subban out together if they really wanted to, uh, and so. There's no competing with that top pair. Uh, Colorado is, at, you know, they're hurt by the fact that they don't have Eric Johnson. He may or may not get in in the playoffs here. Uh, Tyson Berry's had a solid season. I like everything Samuel Garrard has to offer. He actually came over from Nashville, um, but they're just outpaced and outclassed. And, and really, that 
that doesn't speak to Colorado's D. I think it speaks more to Nashville's D than anything else. Uh, that's my take on the on the blue line. Uh, not sure if you agree or have a different sentiment. Well, I, I think there's a huge edge going in Nashville's favor. We, point, we pointed out some of the guys that we liked in the Colorado situation. I think Nikita Zadorov is a guy, is he's going to emerge as one of the top defenders in the, in the Western Conference before too long. And paired with Tyson Berrien, that, uh, that's a pretty strong top pairing. I think there's a little bit of weakness on the second pairing here with Samuel Girard is a promising guy too, but Patrick Nemeth, really not, real, not a, a threat offensively and kind of just a placeholder there until they bolster that position. We got to circle back and touch on the depth chart up front for Colorado too, AJ, where they have a real star in, in Nathan McKinnon, one of the top players in hockey all season long centering the top uh, line there probably the best forward in this series I'll say and uh, partnered with uh, Gabriel Landeskog the, another team leader here Mikko Rantanen is a guy that emerged this season and finally realized some of the potential that has been held out for him uh, since he started uh, in the NHL a couple of seasons ago so they got a pretty solid top line the second line's been in a bit of flux with Tyson Yost and Carl Soderberg vying for that second line role. Uh, Yost, uh, pretty promising uh, f- former high draft pick too, kind of coming into, into his own. But uh, the, the depth of the, the Colorado Avalanche is really reflected in the fact that Sven Andrigetto and Alex Kerfoot round out their top six. I don't think it's a very imposing uh, unit. And then from there it tails off. So of course, I mentioned Soderberg, probably the next best forward. But really, the bottom six here is really wanting, in my opinion. Absolutely agree with that. And, you know, the, the second line has some potential, some long-term, uh, you know, prospects here. Uh, Andrew Ghetto's uh, 25 years old. He's, you know, just 22 points a season, but he can get there. He only played 50 games uh, due to injury. Uh, Tyson Yost is in his first season. Uh, and so there's really, you know, just a handful first full season rather, but, uh, there's really just some untested, uh, aspect to this, uh, Kerfoot's a rookie as well. And so I think, could this be a really solid second line, uh, in another year or two? Absolutely. Are they going to show flashes of being a, a really good unit uh, at times? Absolutely. But I just don't see them holding out throughout a whole, you know, seven, six, five game series against Nashville's second line. Uh, that, that grouping uh, in the Music City is just uh, a little bit better than this group, a little more experienced, obviously, with their deep run last year, too. Yeah, I think that's a theme that runs through this entire matchup. It's the experience of, of the Nashville team versus the upstart nature of Colorado. As I said, neither one of us expected them to make the postseason, but here they are. So maybe they, they're hoping to wear Cinderella's glass slipper here. And uh, in terms of the goalie matchup, it also reflects a bit of a, a skew. We'll start with the fact that in Colorado, AJL note that Semyon Varlamov has already been declared out for the series, so they're going to pin their hopes on Jonathan Bernier. And uh, on the face of it, Bernier against Rene is a huge mismatch. But I will, and I've been a detractor of Bernier forever. But I will say <laughs> this: I will say this, though, AJ, when he has not had the imposition of a of a part of a top-notch second string goalie or a top-notch 1a or 1b with him he's played his best hockey and that's going to be the case here where he doesn't have to look over his shoulder and say oh if i have a bad game is varlamov coming in he's the guy and when he's been the guy he's played extremely well so the gap may not as be as big as you might think against the presumptive uh, i'll say Vezina trophy winner i think pekka is a lock to get that award 
Well, I mean, I don't think it would have mattered even if Varlamov was still here. Uh, Pekka Rene still was going to be the best goalie in, in no this doubt. matchup. No doubt. And uh, so I, I just think, again, it's just a little bit more experience. They've been able to rest uh, Pekka Rene. He's played pretty much every other night since uh, March 24th. You know, going back and forth with how well UC Saros has been playing for them. So they were able to keep him uh, rested and ready to go. I, I think they're prepared. They prepared him for a deep, deep run again this year. Uh, you know, tried to cut down his time here at the end of the season. And, you know, I, I just think uh, he's probably he's definitely in contention for the Vesna. I, I think you bring a great point. He very well may win it. Uh, I'm not sure he'll walk away with it, but it certainly uh, be in the discussion and, and possibly still to get it. But uh, just heads and tails against against Vernia here for me. I, I think the gap is very big. I, I get what you're saying about uh, when he doesn't have to look over his shoulder, he plays better, but, but Rennie is just going to outclass him. And, and to your point, that's been pretty much what we've said about this entire matchup. And so when it comes down to our predictions for the series, I'm going to go out and say that Nashville wins it relatively easily in five games, just because all the check marks seem to be in their column, AJ, and they did dominate the season series. That all uh, all factors point to them doing it doing it rather quickly so i'm saying nashville in five what about you yeah i'm on the same page with you there i think colorado will get one at home uh but then after that it'll pretty much be over all right nashville in five (laughs) there we are we agree in that one and uh we'll see how it goes we'll keep a tally of this for fun during the playoffs aj uh winnipeg and minnesota winnipeg uh the second the only other canadian team other than toronto to make the postseason they had a fabulous year out there and they parlayed their size uh, up front and on the blue line to a tremendous season minnesota is one of those teams that you know they're kind of just there aj for me they they have depth, they have some quality, but the star power doesn't match up with, with some of the other teams in the league. When I look at this team, maybe you feel a little bit different. Let's take a look at the forward lines and see how we view the situations. We'll begin with Winnipeg, and note that Kyle Connor was kind of a DFS darling all year, wasn't he? Playing in that prime role with Mark Shifley and Blake Wheeler. Uh, I always talk about the sidekick theory and watching the, the players who emerge as the placeholders on the top units uh, playing with the superstars in the league. Kyle Connor did that, and he had a fabulous offensive season, so he certainly elevated his status. They, they, that afforded them to build a second scoring line around uh, good buddies Patrick Laine and Nikolai Ehlers, and they found a top-notch center, and out of St. Louis, they got Paul Stastny to round out their top six. It's very solid, and that bumped Brian Little down a notch, and he's probably very well suited to a third-line role. We don't talk about too many third lines, but we will in this case with him centering Matthew Perot and Joel Armia, another formidable unit. This is a team that can ice three very good forward lines, and they'll do so and play a heavy game in the playoffs against Minnesota, Minnesota Wild here. So how do you see the Winnipeg lineup from your perspective? I mean, it's it's hard not to agree with you there. Uh, they're they're just so uh, sol- solid is a great word for it. I mean, when you can put Patrick Line on your second line uh, with a guy like Paul Stastny, Nikolai Ehlers adds. Uh, he's got that that workhorse mentality. He he'll go into dirty areas, dig out the puck for you, use his speed, and then he can dish it to Line, who magically has 
found the open ice despite I, I don't know how guys let him just slide into the open areas but they seem to every time and yeah Blake Wheeler uh, Mark Shifley they would have had phenomenal seasons with probably anybody on that left wing and Kyle Connor's just been the recipient of it all season long I don't think anybody really predicted uh, this kind of breakout year for him I know if you go on his player page at Rotowire, you know, we were projecting 44 games and 25 points. Uh, he obviously played way more than that, 76, 57 points, including 31 goals. So just a phenomenal year by him. And uh, I do think it is because of that sidekick theory. I think he's a solid player. I think, you know, if they had had Matthew Perot up there or, or Andrew Kopp, somebody else, probably wouldn't have had nearly the production there. But uh, there's definitely a bump. Uh, from playing with Shifley and Wheeler. This is one of the best uh, two-line combos in the league, in my opinion. And I, I think Winnipeg could be one of the most dangerous teams in the, the tournament. And, I mean, when you look at the Minnesota offense, uh, A.J., Jason Zucker might be another one of those guys that fills in a bit of a sidekick theory just because he was not expected by me anyway to be as prolific as he was, a 31-goal scorer in his own right. He's playing with Eric Stahl and Nino Niederreiter. Uh, Niederreiter, for me, a bit of an enigma, A.J. I've uh, predicted stardom for this guy for a long while. He was a bit limited by injury this year, missing almost 20 games and put, a, put up some decent points. But here he is on the top line with Eric Stahl, who's emerged as a real team leader here. And I guess the hope is that Stahl can trigger him and and incite him to, uh, to play at a higher level. Uh, I like what they've done on the second line. It's three veteran guys that, you know, you just wind these up and uh, guys up and they're going to give you a great game. So that's Zach Carise, who for a while was the face of this franchise. Miko Koivu at center, just a solid playmaker, a great face-off guy. And Michael Grandlin, who missed a chunk of the season at the start, but emerged as a guy that was a pretty consistent scorer all season long. This is a really solid second line, AJ. Not spectacular, but they are a formidable group. Absolutely. I think they could actually benefit uh, now due to some of those injuries. I mean, Zach Parisi missed a huge chunk of time at the start of the year. He's only played 42 games on the season. Uh, you talked about Granlin missing a little bit of time. He's only, you know, he played 77. So, you know, not a ton of uh, missed ice time here, but these guys could be slightly fresher. Uh, than some of their cohorts who who played full 82 game seasons and so uh, how they adjust to that I, th I think my concern here overall is that a lot of these guys uh, have been uh, at times slumping and, and slumping pretty hard uh, you know with probably the exception of Eric Stahl he's been solid all season long but I, I just I have concerns about uh, getting into a, to a grinding series and potentially getting into a shootout uh, situation with Winnipeg. That offense is just uh, just too good to have to you know put up goals on a night to night basis. So there, this team can score probably three to four a night. But if you're going to ask them to put up five six in order to get a win, I just don't see it happening. Um, but that's a game that Winnipeg can play. I mean, those guys will put up as many goals as anybody else wants to on a night and, and they'll challenge you in those shootout games aj how about profiling the respective defense pairings on the on these clubs 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my concern on Minnesota is obviously some injuries. Uh, Ryan Sutter's out. Gustav Olofsson is out. And now Olofsson's a little further down, but that's going to spread your depth. Uh, They had to bring up Carson Soucy from uh, from Iowa. He's looking like he's probably going to be in that second pairing. Uh, Really an unknown for in a lot of ways. Has just three games uh, in the NHL right now. Looks like they'll get Jared Spurgeon back. Uh, he's supposed to be healthy for game one uh, is trending that way at least hopefully going to play tomorrow and that'll be a huge boost but the the injuries I think have spread uh, kind of the the depth here on the flip side you do have injuries over uh, in Winnipeg as well you've got Dmitry Kulikov off out Toby Enstrom is not going to play in game one but they do uh, again good news bad news for them they're going to get uh, Jacob Truba back they do still of course still have big Dustin Bufflin there uh, who can chip in Josh Morrissey's been a bit of a surprise as well uh, so for me I give a little bit of the edge to the Winnipeg D here uh, but you know not not a huge gap uh, I don't think they're significantly better uh, if everybody can get healthy uh, so that that's kind of how I saw everything breaking down that the depth of concern for Minnesota I give the edge to Winnipeg uh, Paul what about you when you take a look at these blue lines I share your view in that way at both but uh, the point that overrides that for me is uh, if, if we can talk about a DFS angle here I think the goalies could suffer because I think this could be a very high scoring series even though it's a short one just because of the respective uh, thinness uh, if, if that's a word that I can use on, on both, <laughs> both defenses with the injury situations and we talked about the prolific nature of both offenses so I think that uh, both defenses will be under stress and the one that handles it best will, will go a long way to determining the success of their team here and uh, in terms of the goalies AJ uh, an intriguing matchup for me here Connor Hallibuck is a guy that that I had my eye on in preseason as a as a guy who could be a difference maker and boy that turned out to be a pretty gold uh, gold star prediction uh, in my corner I know you you echoed those sentiments early on as well as Steve out outperformed Steve Mason by a wide margin and emerged as one of the top goalies in the league and Devin Dubnik entered the season with a similar profile, although he didn't come up with as big a year as Hallibuck. This is a pretty good matchup between two of the of, uh, of the modern breed of goalies. They seem to grow, grow them big now and put them stick them in the nets. These guys cover up a lot of space, and they play a similar style. They'll be tough to beat, but I think, as I said, it could be a high-scoring game uh, series because of the the injuries on the blue lines, and uh, Hallibuck and uh, Dubnik are going to face a lot of rubber in this series. Absolutely. I, I read the, the matchup exactly the same. I mean, you want to talk about, about a big guy in net. You've got Devin Dubnik coming in at 6'6". Uh, 218 is, is what we have him listed at Rotowire. Um, and that's that's just a huge, huge guy. The fact that he technically towers over Connor Hellubuck by two inches uh, says a lot about uh, how big that guy is. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, I think Connor Hellubuck, I would give him the edge. I think he's a little bit more mobile, uh, able to use, you know, a little bit of uh, movement in combination with the size. Um, But I agree. It's a very close matchup. Hellybuck uh, hasn't been here before. This is new for him. Playoff hockey is not something he's used to. Uh, If you if it comes down to to either of these backups, uh, that's where I think Winnipeg has a significant edge in Steve Mason uh, compared uh, to uh, um, 
the youngster there in, in Minnesota, Alex Stalock. Yeah. Uh, but from the starters, I think they're pretty close. Uh, and but I agree the the defense could, uh, you know, have have the rubber flying. And I think that's not the type of game Minnesota wants to get in against that Winnipeg offense. No. And in terms of the Winnipeg situation, you've got to talk about the way they combine size and speed better than any other team in the league, I think. And that's why I give them a heavy lean in terms of the way I break this series down. I'm calling the Jets in five games, AJ. Yeah, man, I really, you know, just so our listeners know, we try not to like agree just to give other like sentiments, but in in a lot of cases here, we have to, and we're going to do it again here. Winnipeg in five. Uh, I just think that they're too good of a team uh, right now. They're not going to struggle against Minnesota. Uh, You know, there's just uh, something about that Winnipeg offense that has me pretty certain that they're going to win these games pretty handily. And now in the Twitter sphere, our, uh, our buddy Daniel Negrano has really started something about the series in Los Angeles uh, and Vegas. And, the, of course, he's backing Vegas, the team that won the division out there in the West and will have to go through a couple of California-based teams to advance beyond the first and second rounds. Uh, maybe they're Destiny's darlings. I'm not sure, AJ, but they certainly had a, a magical first season in the NHL. And I have really swayed back and forth in terms of how I see this series uh, unfolding. But let's begin by taking a look at the offenses of the respective teams. The uh, the Vegas team, we've talked about it all year long. They took a lot of second-tier guys from different teams and molded them in, in uh, a pretty nice dynamic offense built on speed. It's a real speed game that they play, almost focusing on that to the exception of almost one team that we'll touch on later in the in this breakdown uh, but the, the way these guys play the game it's a high uh, high tempo and uh, guys like Thomas Tatar who was brought in late in the season are going uh, are going to be asked to fit in with uh, guys that really emerged from nowhere Willie Carlson Alex Took Jonathan Marchessault well Marchessault had a 30 goal season last year too but uh, they they molded this offense and filled it out with with uh, James Neal was a signature player but they filled it out with a guy like Cody Eakin who uh, played first line minutes and in top six minutes in the past too but not on a regular basis here they get the regular shifts uh, in those roles and they've really buttoned things down in terms of solidifying themselves in in this way and uh, they've even got support in, in a third line where Riley Smith was bumped down from the top six role because of injuries late in the season this is a guy who will play top six minutes at some point in the playoffs too so a seventh kind of wild card into the top six uh, in in the Las Vegas situation and we flip over to the LA situation and take a look and see you know since Jeff Carter came back in the lineup it gave them a great one-two at center with a Kopitar and Carter maybe the size advantage there exists for the Los Angeles uh, power pairing uh, in the top two and these guys are both pretty good skaters too so that could be a test for the Vegas forwards and you'll round it out with the likes of uh, Tanner Pearson and Dustin Brown who had a fabulous season uh, maybe one of the comeback players of the year a comeback players of the last five years you can say he did that out of nowhere uh, having the year that he had and I still like Tyler Toffoli a heck of a lot Tobias Ryder to me is a wild card here he's a guy who has played top six minutes elsewhere much more is expected of him than he's delivered though he, I put him in the same camp as Niederreiter who I talked about before so uh, they have a bit of a gap there in, in terms of the depth offensively in Los Angeles but uh, their size could pose issues for for the uh, Vegas forwards, in my opinion. This very tough matchup maybe for Vegas, but I think they have the speed to overcome it. 
Yeah, I have some concerns about a handful of guys. On, I'm, I'm really both teams that are slumping uh, and at the wrong time. And I'll start with Vegas. Thomas Tatar, uh, the goal scoring has really dried up uh, towards the end of the season here. Just one goal uh, in his last uh, eight games. And so uh, that's obviously a concern. James Neal has been slumping as well. Uh, he's a guy that is somewhat notorious for going hot cold. Uh, he missed a, a handful of games due to injury, came back one goal in his last 12. Now I think what can help them here is I do think Riley Smith can slide into a top six role here. I think if they can get David Perron back, uh, from, from his injury, that'll really help them too. But uh, a couple slumping guys on, on Vegas have me concerned about their offense. But it's the same for me in L.A. Uh, you know, you talked about Tobias Ryder. Uh, He's got just one goal in his last seven. Uh, same goes for, for Tanner Pearson. He's another one that struggled. He hasn't scored since March 19th. Uh, and so a couple of guys on both clubs uh, on the wings. Now, centers, I think, for both these teams are solid. I give the edge to L.A. with Kopitar and Carter with the experience here. Um, but the wingers on both clubs, I have some concerns. I think ultimately I do agree. I think the speed can hopefully help Vegas, uh, you know, get around, uh, you know, the 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 Kings here on that, on that front defensively, you know, you're looking at uh, a solid group that, that won't wow you uh, over in LA. Now they will be without Derek Forbert and Jake, or they could be without Derek Forbert and Jake Muzzin here. Their uh, status is up in the air. Alec Martinez, Drew Dowdy, Dion Phaneuf, they're all very solid guys. So you add in Forbert and Muzzin, you're looking at a really defensively minded group uh and the same goes for vegas it's it's not a very heralded group um but shea theodore Braden mcnab have really contributed in in their own ways Derek anglin has been solid for them all season uh clayton stoner continues to be out i think that's going to hurt them long term uh but they do have the option of putting nate schmidt in there right now it looks like zach whitecloud uh, is going to get that look there although I actually think he's ineligible for when he signed his, his entry-level deal. He right. signed it in March. So uh, he'll have to come out of the lineup, <coughs> and it'll probably be uh, for Nate Schmidt. He's not dealing with an injury, looks like perhaps just uh, a rest day. So uh, that's how I, I see the defense kind of evenly matched, a little unheralded. I think I give the edge to the Kings, though. I'm going to say I'm giving it to Vegas uh AJ, I know White Cloud is a bit of a late season kind of flyer, but they have uh, the likes of Schmidt and Merrill in reserve in uh, in Vegas, and I think you could see them popping in uh, to that top six and making it a more experienced grouping. And I think they got more speed there, and and I see the LA side, and I think there's a couple of plotters in there. I'll include Fanuf in that mix, uh, although he's a pretty wily guy, and in front of that, he uses his tricks to to oppose players and kind of prevent them from getting sticks loose a lot more times than he gets caught and uh, so hopefully he he can continue that bit of uh, mastery i guess you can call it in terms of that skill but i i like the mobility of the 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 las vegas defense over the kings here and i see that as maybe a bit of a uh, the biggest edge i think in terms of either side over the other and uh, having me lean in that direction in the goaltending mix i think this is a very even matchup uh we talk about mark andre fleury a lot because you love this guy but he's really (laughs) played so well that i i have a soft spot for him too one of the nicest guys in the game by all accounts but what he's done on the ice in the last, in his career is something that he mirrored in an expansion environment and he was a real key when healthy to really buttoning things down 
and almost having like a soccer goalie goals against average on the season to match what Jonathan Quick did in Los Angeles. Uh, it really showed you uh, in terms of the bit of a dip that they took last season when Quick was out, how valuable he is to that team. So you're talking about, I think, each team's v- respective MVPs going head-to-head in a goalie matchup where I don't think you could, you could slide a piece of paper in between them to, to find any kind of a difference. Absolutely. I, I agree with, you know, everything in the, in the regular season, uh, you know, they're pretty evenly matched. Uh, I do think it's interesting, you know, flurry career numbers for goals against average 2.24. That's the lowest of his career and his highest save percentage 0.927. Uh, but overall, you know, for regular season experience they are, they're very evenly matched. Uh, what gives me the edge is that uh, Vegas is the only team fielding a three-time Stanley Cup champion here. Uh, Flurry knows what it takes to win uh, come playoff time. Now, granted, he's been backed up by some of the best offenses uh, that, that any netminder could ask for. Um, and so I think that has obviously helped him at times. Uh, but for me, the experience is what it comes down to. Quick is no slouch by any means, uh, has, has won his own as well. But um, you know, so I, I do think they're very evenly matched. Uh, I'm obviously, you know, uh, a fan of Flurry. I'm wearing his jersey as we speak. <laughs> um, but uh, it is, it's to your point, these are the two MVPs of this team. And it's going to come down to what these two guys can do. I, th- I think whoever has the better netminder uh, performance here is, is going to be the one to walk away with it. Well, and like I said, I volleyballed the pick. Uh, ultimate pick back and forth here for a while I'm going to settle on Vegas in seven games I think the regular season performance has been so consistent out of this club and they play that up-tempo game that could be a real challenge for Vegas I mean people have been saying all oh, the Vegas team's going to grind them down with experience and this and that but they didn't catch them in the regular season I think they're going to have difficulty catching them on a nightly basis in the playoffs too just because of the up-tempo game that Vegas brings to the table and they match them in the most important category for Los Angeles and that's in goal so so that's uh, that's uh, negating what Los Angeles Edge might be over most other teams in these playoffs uh, in terms of the goaltending here. So I think Vegas wins it narrowly in a seven-game thriller, I'll say. I'm going to go six games. I, I think Vegas can get it done a little bit quicker uh, than seven. I know that means they have to pick up a pair on the road, uh, but I, I think they're capable of it. Uh, I like the speed. I, I do give the edge to Flurry and Gold just because – you know, like I said, he is having career numbers. Um, and so I, I think Vegas in six, I think they can get it done a little bit quicker, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a, a definitely a tough series. Now, uh, before we get into the next series, we're going to tease the fact that we're going to talk about this uh, rivalry thing at the end of the show in terms of the rant of the week, I'll say. But for now, let's talk about the two California teams that will go head to head in that first round. That's Anaheim and San Jose. It seems like these teams match up every season. They've got a heated rivalry and also you can throw Los Angeles into the mix. Uh, and Vegas is the outsider that's made good. But in terms of the regular season matchup here, Anaheim and San Jose met four times. Anaheim won the season series three games to one. The top lines, AJ, uh, there's size and physicality on the Anaheim side that I think is going to pose issues for the San Jose side. I'm sure we'll get to San Jose and find their strengths too. But for me, I I just think that the nasty game that Perry, Kessler, and Getzlaff can play will be a real handful for for 
any team that faces this club in the playoffs. Rickard Raquel uh, rounds out the top unit. That sidekick theory coming into play big time in the way Raquel put up another fine offensive season, being the top left winger of choice much of the year. There's been a bit of a drop-off on the left side here. Cogliano looks like the guy that's going to be the placeholder on the Kessler line with Silverberg, who's a fine offensive threat and a guy that they plug in on their special teams with some degree of success here. But the strength of the Anaheim team is in the depth at offense. They took a guy who was playing top six minutes in New Jersey, made him a third-line center, and really, there's not too many teams that can put up with the likes of Getzlaff, Kessler, and Henrik in terms of the top three pivots that Anaheim can throw out there. For their part, San Jose will counter with the fact that uh, sadly, they're going to be without Joe Thornton, but Joe Pavelski slid into the middle in a seamless transition, and uh, credit to him for holding down that first-line center role uh, with a big Jumbo Joe, who is on the DL. I'm not sure that he's going to make it into the starting lineup for the series opener. Might not even play too much in the playoffs, but we'll have to keep an eye on that situation. Logan Couture, a very underrated center, in my opinion. This guy, if he was playing in the East, would be viewed as a, an all-star, I think. Uh, his profile, a little bit less out there on the West Coast, but make no mistake, they got a solid one-two punch at center. It's the wings here where they're wanting in San Jose. I think there's a bit of a shortfall. Evander Kane and Thomas Hurdle, very very solid on the left side, but it's the right side that leaves me with big concerns. Junas Donskoy and Michael Bodker, they wouldn't make too many top six of too many other teams in the postseason, AJ, in my opinion. So really, the shortfall is on the right, right, right wing here for, for San Jose, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment here on, on both these teams. Uh, you know, starting with San Jose, I just think they're too thin without Joe in, in the lineup there. Uh, they've gotten by, I feel like, for much of the season. They added Evander Kane, and obviously that's a huge get for them. Um, but if, you know, if they could potentially have, you know, Kane, Thornton, and maybe Donskoy, that would give them a second line that would potentially have Hurdle, Couture, and Pavelski, or some combination of those two. Uh, that's how I would sh- spread it out. I wouldn't put Thornton, Pavelski, and Kane all in one line just because they don't have the depth. And I really think that's what's going to hurt them. Uh, you get down into the third and fourth line on this team, and it's just not there. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of trouble for them to keep up with the, the physical style of play that Anaheim likes to play. Now, that's not to say that they're not a speedy team either. Silverberg and Raquel can add a little get up and go as well. And you go down from there. You know, Nick Ritchie, uh, Adam Henrique, and Andre Case, that's a solid, solid third line. Uh, And even their fourth line looks decent. They snagged JT Brown off waivers. He's been a contributor in some postseason runs as well. So I I just think there's there's too much depth. Uh, But even, you know, looking at just the top two lines, I think Anaheim kind of outclasses them here a little bit. Uh, And I think that carries over uh, slightly onto the blue line outside of Brent Burns. Uh, You know, the, the San Jose Sharks just don't. Uh, have a lot to offer in my opinion outside of uh, outside of Burns you know Paul Martin is back playing defensively with him and and I think that's great for them Uh, Mark Edward Vlasic can contribute but he's not a huge offensive guy Uh, you know just 32 points on the year uh, 11 goals which was a career high but I I expect that to dry up a little bit in the postseason for him Uh, and then you're looking at a couple guys who I think are uh, development options, but just, you know, they're, they haven't gotten there all the way. You know, Justin Brown is 31. So to still call him development might be a stretch, but he's only got 13 points this year. He's not really going to chip in much there. You know, you go up and you look at the Anaheim group, 
Josh Manson and Brandon Montero, I think have been great. Uh, having Cam Fowler out, Kevin Bieksa out as well, I think hurts them, but that still leaves them with Hampus Lindholm. Francois Beauchemin uh, is a solid option there as well. And I just think there's too much uh, on this Anaheim D to, to really for San Jose to compete with. Uh, that's at least how I see it. Brent Burns is above everybody, um, but then from there, there's just not enough San Jose depth for me. Boy, you're not giving them a lot of love there. I, I'm looking at the fact <laughs> that if this was a regular season thing, you might say, okay, uh, Anaheim could be exposed on the back end with the likes of Marcus Peterson and Andy Walensky being forced to play minutes. But really, the top four guys here, you can expect them to each play uh, at least 20 minutes. That leaves a little chunk for the other two guys. And Corbinian Holzer can be thrown into the mix. So I share your view that Anaheim's top four can handle the mail. And really, it's due to the emergence of guys like Manson and Montour who really evolved into solid options on the back end. But I think you're not throwing enough love San Jose's way. I know you're a fan of Paul Martin with the Pittsburgh ties. I mean, not a threat to be uh, an offensive dynamo, but he really insulates Brent Burns so he can play that offensive game. And you know he's going to play upwards, maybe even 30 minutes a game for them. And Braun and Vlasic, they had combined for over 60 points offensively, which is something that I didn't expect from this pairing. So that kind of gives them more... uh, defense at the blue line and they don't have the worry about a third line pair that's untried and and unproven because Brennan Dillon and Dylan DeMello have played a lot of hockey for them this season and so has Joaquin Ryan so I think that the edge on defense is not as wide as you paint it so I'll give it almost an even rating there in my opinion uh, and then in terms of the goalie matchup uh, it's a little bit murky in Anaheim with the status of their starter but Martin Jones has emerged as the top guy for San Jose on a great finish to his regular season and I think he's got to prove himself again it seems like he's always faced with that issue uh, not so long ago a backup in this league but a guy who has put together a couple of pretty good regular seasons on the whole and he'll be facing off against John Gibson if he's healthy but that's a question mark too AJ they held him out over the last three games of the regular season by all accounts that's just a maintenance thing toward the end of the the schedule but uh, he has been nicked up and they do have veteran Ryan Miller in reserve but I don't think they want to pin their hat hopes on him for an entire seven game series yeah it sounds like gibson uh, could be back he was at practice yesterday uh, whether that you know how far that goes how how much you can trust that is is definitely a question mark here uh jones has me a little worried uh one four and oh in his last five games has played a lot of hockey lately because they needed him to uh to shore up the the playoff spot here he's only sat out uh three games since uh mid-february uh as like i said that's a ton of hockey uh over over the tail end stretch here 24 games played just three sat on the sideline so i i have some serious question marks there uh i think if 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 gibson misses time uh i don't have too many concerns about ryan miller do i think they want to go a full postseason with him probably not um, but I think he can at least get them maybe a first round series uh, victory uh, based on everything else that we talked about with them. I think he could do that, give Gibson a little more time to get to 100 uh, percent. Like I said, Jones overall, I think, is a great netminder, has had some success. But uh, the recent string has me a little concerned. And uh, overall, I'm going to say I, I don't share your worry too, too much. I think that Anaheim proved themselves 
on the regular season here by winning three games to one in that regular season set two. So I think I think for me the size of the Anaheim Ducks, the play, the way they play a tough physical game, I think that's going to get to uh, the San Jose team, which it's more flash and dash for them. But Anaheim can skate with these guys. They've proven it in the regular season. I think they're going to prove it again in the playoffs, and I think in the Ducks in six. So I, I know it sounds like I've been begging on, on the Sharks pretty bad, um, but I, I do think they can be competitive here. I'm actually going to go Anaheim in seven. Uh, I, I think it'll be a tough series for both sides. I think Martin Jones, if he plays like the player he can be, not the player he has been the last few games, I think he could steal a couple games here for them uh, that maybe they otherwise shouldn't win. So I, I think it'll be a tough, long series, but I do think Anaheim gets the win, albeit in seven games. And so we kind of agree on all the teams that we think are going to emerge in the first round in the West. Let's see if that continues in the East. We'll begin with a series that wasn't decided until the last game of the season, and that's Tampa and New Jersey. The regular season matchup favored New Jersey, oddly enough, three games to nothing. Not too many people are talking about that fact, that the Devils seem to have Tampa's number a little bit on the regular season. Let's try to dive into that a little bit and find out why that might be later. But in terms of the offenses here, Certainly the big question mark is in Tampa is what is going on with Steven Stamkos? He didn't finish the regular season in the, in the lineup and was kind of nicked up down the stretch and had a very, very long scoreless, scoreless drought here. So you wonder if he can hit the ice running when the serious shooting starts this week. A uh, bit of a question mark right at the top of the order. But around him, you got to love the way that JT Miller's fit in here, AJ. Seamless transition for a guy they picked up at the deadline. I think it was one of the better pickups of any team at the trade deadline. It's proven to be, uh, certainly. And Nikita Kucherov, he was the league's leading scorer for a long while. But I think the fact that Stamkos was injured down the stretch did impact his offense. And so you got to keep an eye on that top unit for that fact as well. But uh, the second line here, also a pretty strong one uh, in terms of the center that has emerged in Braden Point, giving him a nice one too. This guy's put together two great seasons in that role and really solidified the second center line uh, position. Tyler Johnson uh, kind of... uh, uh, moved up and down in the lineup but I think he's well situated now in a top six role on the right side a guy who a lot of the offense goes through even on the special teams here so a good good player to keep an eye on in your pools in that case and a kind of a dark horse to round out their offense Andre Palat uh, himself dealing with injury issues all season long but it's between him and Kalorn and he won out the position to hold on to that top six role much of the way so uh, that's the way I see their offense breaking down there in New Jersey we got to talk we're going to talk a little bit more about Taylor Hall later but you got to love the way he emerged as a key piece here for them and uh, right now he's not even listed on the depth chart uh, among the top five lines on on uh, Rotowire's page, but don't fret. That's just because they held him out of the regular season finale. He is going to be fine for the playoffs, so don't be alarmed when you go and see that. Just recognize that it was based on the fact that that he didn't play uh, by design in that last game of the season. He will be there and starting up on the wing. And uh, Nico Heischer has been the beneficiary of playing with one of the top guys in hockey and put together a fine rookie season there. Kind of like what Austin Matthews did. I like the way they brought him along and they've slowly uh, inserted him. He was started out like third line minutes at the beginning of the season. Now he's definitely a first line player. And uh, it's the right wing that's been a bit in flux there. I think Patrick Maroon 
Maroon is a guy that I would expect to see on that top line. Drew Stafford, a pretty nice placeholder in terms of special teams strength and offense provided on the right wing on the second unit. Pavel Zaka, another youngster at the, in the middle. The future is bright for this team when you look at the, how young some of their key players are, AJ. But it's the left wing on this club that really leaves me a little bit of a concern. The likes of uh, beyond beyond Taylor Hall, is it going to be Grabner? Is it going to be Wood? Is it going to be Brat that holds on to that uh, top six role and uh, has some value in the postseason here? Yeah, I share a lot of a lot of your sentiments here, Paul. I'll start I'll start with New Jersey since you were just talking about them. Uh, I I love what they can do on that top line. Uh, you know, I I picture it being Hall, Zajac, and Palmieri, uh, but he sure could get in there as well. Uh, potentially Jasper Bratt has been uh, a little up and down has gotten bounced from the lineup but for a rookie putting up 35 points in 74 games I think is a great uh, you know start to his career and I think he can uh, certainly contribute for them so I, I really like their top two line combos here uh, in in, uh, in Tampa Bay I'm a little concerned about Tyler Johnson and I know he's been playing center uh, because of uh, Stamkos being out, but he's got just one assist in his last eight games. Uh, and so I, I, I have some serious concerns now moving back to wing. Maybe that'll help him. Uh, but there, there's some question marks there. I think Stamkos is going to play uh, whether he can be back right away after sitting out, a, you know, almost a week is certainly a, a question to be asked. And the one kind of X factor for me with this this club is that let's not forget they do still have Chris Kunitz, who occasionally got you know some top uh, six minutes here. For the most part, has been a fourth liner for them this year. But if they go up against a team where they need, feel like they need a little more more grit, uh, he could certainly slide in for Palat. That would maybe stretch out. Uh, you know, Palat could move over for Johnson. Maybe that's what they do. Some sort of combination there. But I think Kunitz can be an X factor here for the Lightning. Uh, moving over defensively, uh, there's question marks for this Tampa Bay team because they just haven't been able uh, to limit shots. You know, they brought in Ryan McDonough that was supposed to kind of fix things for them. Uh, I don't really think that's worked overall. Uh, you know, he, he's been solid, uh, you know, you know, over his career has just three points in the 14 games for, for Tampa Bay. Now he's not a huge goal scorer, at least hasn't been the last couple of years, but his assists have been a lot higher. And so that's kind of been uh, the key to his, his point totals uh, over his career when he was with the Rangers that just hasn't materialized in Tampa right now. Victor Hedman, of course, is one of the top players in the league, continues to be, and the blue line scoring is going to start and stop with him. Uh, and so that that is a benefit that they have. But outside of there, you know, Dan Girardi, I think is starting to get uh, a little long in the tooth here. And it's been a, a tough season, played 77 games this year. Uh, that's the most that he's played since the 2014-15 campaign. So you have to wonder how his legs are feeling right now. Uh, and so I, I do have some questions outside of, you know, Hedman, uh, you know, what they can offer there. Uh, going toward, you know, to the to the other side of this matchup, uh, I'm a little more secure in it, to be totally honest with you. Uh, I, I think it's it's not a, a flashy group uh, for 
for the Devils here, but Miko Mueller, Andy Green uh, can be solid for them. They'll have Sammy Vatanen back. I, I think he rested up. Yeah. I love Will Butcher and, and what he had to offer. Ben Lovejoy is an experienced guy that has really, I think, helped the rookie. I think they've paired up really well together, uh, Lovejoy with Butcher, kind of showing him the ropes, uh, you know, giving him uh, some pointers here and there. So uh, I, I actually like the defensive group with the Devils a little bit more. Again, I'll say the same thing I did in, in the last matchup. You've got Victor Hedman above everybody else, um, but if you take him out of the equation, I think the Devils have more depth outside of that and, and more pieces here. Yeah, I'm going to go along with you. Kind of, I, I think we're in the minority, though, of all the pundits out there, but I think what you said is spot on. I think uh, another name you didn't mention who has some offensive upside on the Devils is Damon Severson. I through a strong AHL career and uh, even in spot duty on the power play for the Devils he gives them an added dimension back there too uh, you mentioned Vatnan and Butcher will be the guys that really get most of the high, uh, limelight in terms of those special team situations as the power play quarterbacks but they got a third option in Severson as well so that uh, that to me co- counters the top heavy nature of the Tampa side uh, certainly, Sergachev slowed down a little bit in the second half offensively. A uh, lot of pressure on Hedman here to produce, and uh, but this is a horse. Uh, I think he's odds-on to be the Norris Trophy winner this season, AJ, uh, and and so far and away the best defense player. But I think one through six, I'm going to agree with you. The De- Devils have the edge in this situation. And in goal, there's a very unique uh, circumstance here. The, the Devils are, are banking now on Keith Kincaid, who outplayed Cor- Corey Schneider over the second half of the season particularly the last six weeks to steal that job and he's one of the few backups that will start started the season who will be the number one guy for his team in the postseason against uh, Vasilevsky under Vasilevsky if you would have asked a lot of people they would have said this guy was the Vezina Trophy winner over the first half but his play went south over the second half in a big big way of the top goalies of all the playoff teams his goals against was by far the worst so he's going to have to turn it around and turn it around in a hurry here because his opposite numbers at the top of his game well i'm actually gonna gonna you know disagree here i i, I think vasileski has really struggled lately um you know you look at his last 12 games yes seven wins over that stretch but a 3.85 goals against average and there's one two three four games in which he gave up five or more goals over this stretch and got bailed out he got wins in three of those uh based so you're, on his agreeing, offense. you're agreeing with me though you're not or, sorry yeah sorry <laughs> agreeing with you yes vasileski has really struggled lately yeah. um uh yeah so i agree with you paul I've, i have some serious concerns there yeah. and kincaid has been solid uh a, a competition has really helped him uh and you know again I doubt we're going to see any of the backups, but if we do, I think, uh, you know, they've got some decent options, uh, in Tampa Bay, but having, uh, Corey Schneider listed as your backup netminder in, in the devils is, is a nice little, uh, piece to have in your pocket there. So I think Kincaid has outperformed, uh, Vasilevsky down the stretch here. Hasn't been able to take as much time off, but did get to sit the last game against Washington. Uh, and so hopefully that'll help him here. Um, but I, I just think Keith Kincaid is red hot right now. And Vasilevsky is really struggling uh, with the kind of heavy workload of being the full number one uh, in, in Tampa Bay. You know, I think Tampa had to be worried no matter what a playoff match up they were going to get in the first round just because of the way things have gone a bit downhill for this club but I think there's too much talent here 
for the Devils on the whole. I think it's going to be closer than than uh, Tampa fans would like. I think Tampa's going to win it in seven games, but boy, I, I could see it going the other way just because of the Devils' uh, hot nature of their goaltending here. But I'm going to stick my neck out and say Tampa's going to right their ship and uh, have a narrow win in seven games. Well, I am going to go the other way. I think it'll be the Devils. I do think this is a seven-game series. I don't think we're going to see, you know, the, I know the regular season, the, the Devils swept it. I don't think we're going to see any sweeps here. Uh, these are two pretty evenly matched clubs in a lot of ways. Um, but I think the the defensive concerns and the goaltending uh, issues that they've had of late for Vasilevsky have me going with the Devils uh, in a seven all right, well, now it's coming down to the series that I'm going to be most interested in, Boston and Toronto. I'm going to try and hide my heart here for a little bit and see what the numbers tell us. Uh, but, AJ, the regular season began with uh, the regular season outlook uh, tells us, rather, that Toronto had the edge three games to one. Two of those games they played even without Austin Matthews. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say that uh, the Leafs had the edge in the regular season. In fact, the last two seasons, they've won seven of the eight games these two teams have played, and I'll call it the Austin Matthews era. And in terms of the analysis of the Maple Leafs offense, it begins with that top line. And really, they have a bit of a different look here than Boston. When you think that both teams are the only two teams in the league that have three 30-goal scorers on offense, the Leafs have one on each line. The Bruins have all three of theirs on one line. So there, there's a very interesting disparity there. The, the Leafs, of course, they stuck with the same lines much of the season. It's been a long time since I've seen a Toronto team do this, but they're three lines deep in terms of the quality depth that they can roll out uh, on a nightly basis. Zach Hyman should get credit for a 40-point season where he was the digger and grinder on a line that featured Matthews and Nylander. And there's t- it's tough to find a, a duo with the skill of these two young guys. So the future is certainly bright in Toronto with that offensive mix. But uh, a guy who's getting a lot of credit for their development is Patrick Marlowe, who had a 27-goal season on the second line with Nazem Kadri and Mitch Marner rounding out that unit. Marner actually was the club's offensive leader in terms of points on the season, largely due to the fact that Matt, uh, Matthews missed almost 20 games on the year. And the third line features a couple of guys who might be sing- playing their swan songs in Toronto, playing out as US UFA their club's leading goal scorer James Van Riemsdyk flanked by his longtime partner Tyler Bozak they remember the last two time these two teams met and it had an inglorious end for Toronto that the Toronto fans still get twitchy at night when they think about this rounding <laughs> out that top nine they've got Connor Brown a guy who is very underrated right now but believe me folks this guy's a quality NHL player and when the shooting gets tougher this is a guy who could be uh, a late round pick in your drafts who could come through in a big way it's just playoffs seem to be a time where guys like this shine and even the fourth line here is going to be worth mentioning because Placanitz is going to get the duty more often than not to face off against Patrice Bergeron and try and negate the Boston top offensive line and you know that he, he and Brad Marchand have a real hate for one another because they've clashed many times in the past. The Leafs are going to put Leo Komarov out against that unit as well and round it out with Kasperi Kapanen. On the flip side, I mentioned the Bruins are a little bit top-heavy in terms of their offensive uh, pedigree. Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, David Pasternak, quite simply, the best line in hockey, in my opinion. And uh, behind them, David Krejci, not having the kind of year that he's had in the past, 
uh, probably injuries catching up with him a little bit. You might think the same thing for David Backus, but these guys can both play, ramp it up at the postseason time, and they're going to insulate a youngster like Jake DeBrusque, who probably doesn't know enough to be scared in the postseason <laughs> because he's he's so young to the party and uh, could be a guy that really is a centerpiece on this offense as well. They rounded out with veterans like Brian Gianta and Tommy Wingles, but and and Noel Cherry is there too. But youngsters like Danton Heinen, Ryan Ryan Donato give this team a bit of a different look than we expected at the beginning of the season. They're nicked up offensively as well. A couple of their regular fourth liners, Riley Nash and Sean Corelli, are out to start the series but the bigger issue here is rick nash the guy they brought in to be a difference maker he had has not performed very well for boston on the whole and he's been racked uh, ravaged by injury again it seems like he's not going to be ready to start this series either so i have some question marks on the offense for offensive side of the bruins the all their eggs in one basket approach uh, probably will be in tough against maple leafs offensive depth here yeah, I do think the key for this team is whether the the Nashes uh, can can get back in the lineup. Uh, I, I I echo your sentiments. It's a top top heavy uh, group here. Although David Backus uh, is certainly no slouch by any stretch of the imagination, so I do think that second line should be good. Um, but they will really ride Marchand, Bergeron, and Pasternak here. Uh, and I I think overall. Uh, I like Toronto's uh, forward combinations better. I mean, you're looking at uh, some young guys who have performed really well in Matthews, Nylander, Marlo, uh, Marner. You talked about Zach Hyman's phenomenal season. Uh, you have the experience factor in Patrick Marlowe. This is a guy that's played 177 NHL playoff games. Uh, that's a lot of postseason experience. Uh, you know, you're looking at more than two full additional seasons just uh, in playoff hockey. And so I think that is something that can't be undersold on this group. And yeah, you go down the line and, you know, Reams like uh, Bozak and Brown, Kapanen, Plakanik, Komarov. It's, I think they're just too deep to really uh, be able to give the edge to Boston when it comes to forwards. Yes, that top group uh, is phenomenal, but it gets a little thin after that. I, like I said before, I think the key is going to be whether the two Nashes uh, can play. Uh, defensively, I, I, I'm not real high on the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, blue line. Uh, Paul, you see them a little bit up more up close. You know them a little bit better. Uh, Ron Hainsey, obviously coming off the, the title last year with, with Pittsburgh. Um, but for, for my money, I think this group is a little unheralded. Uh, you've got Polak and Carrick who've kind of swept back and forth. Travis Dermont has looked good, uh, but he's a little young still. Uh, and playoff hockey could be a, a lot to handle for him. On the flip side, you've got Chara, who you know we all know has the experience. Charlie McAvoy has been solid for them uh, all season long and, and really a great addition to their club. Uh, Krug and Miller uh, are a nice pairing as well. I think Nick Holden will slide back in as well. Brandon Carlo is out. That's obviously a concern. Uh, they're not expected to get him back uh, three to four months on their recovery time there. Uh, I guess maybe if they made it all the way to, J to June, he might have a chance. But for the most part, let's count him out. Uh, and so I do give the edge to Boston in these these deep pairings. But uh, certainly I'll let you make an argument that Toronto might uh, be better than I think. Like I said, you see them night in, night out. And, and I, 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 I probably think you can convince me is what I'm trying to say if your argument is strong enough. Well, I think when you look at the 
the units here, it's mobility that stands out for me. In terms of the Maple Leafs, they got five of their defensemen are really mobile guys, and Roman Hapalak, the sixth guy, plays a physical game that half the Bruin defense does too. So uh, he's not uh, that bad an outlier in terms of the sixth option here. They will put Connor Carrick in if the, the speed game, uh, they want to ramp that up even more and make it a top six that, that are all speedy guys. But the, what I like about this group is they've cleaned up their uh, their play in their defensive end a little bit uh, down the stretch. Jake Gardner particularly, uh, as people who listen to this show regularly would understand and follow me on Twitter, I haven't been bashing this guy for the last six weeks because he's playing great hockey. And the Leafs defense boasts the only defense where there's two scorers that produce more than 50 points on the regular season here. So that's another feather in their cap offensively. You've, you've made a point on the defensive side of the puck in favor of the Boston Bruins. Certainly they play a button-down game better than the Leafs do, but I think it's a lack of mobility on this this blue line, Chara included, that will be exposed because of the overwhelming team speed. And it's been on display for two years in this head-to-head matchup, AJ. So it really comes down to the goaltending of Tuka Rask, to my mind. If he, if they, Bruins win, he's going to have to outplay Freddie Anderson by a significant margin. He did so in the last six weeks, and that's kind of what distanced Boston from Tampa and Toronto down the stretch for most of the way, although Boston did falter at the end and wound up second. But Tuka Rask's play is going to be central to the outcome of this series. And the Leafs have had his number finally in the last couple of seasons, so I'm heartened by that situation a little bit. But wonder if you think uh, the goaltending could be pivotal, and how does Freddie Anderson really stack up? He's had a, a set a record for Leaf goalie wins with 38, uh, a modest total in some some camps, but a pretty strong year for the second year in a row in Toronto. This guy has proven to be a big game goalie. He certainly has the Bruins' number eight and one in his career as well. Yeah, it's these. This might be one of the toughest uh, goaltending matchups to pick between. Uh, you know, Tuka Rask has been a, a thirty-game winner since you know uh, since the lockout-shortened season in <laughs> excuse me in twelve thirteen. Every year since then, picks up thirty wins. Uh, is a is a great great netminder. Uh, Freddie Anderson. And there might be some people that would have knocked uh, him early in the year based on, you know, past seasons. I think myself included in that role, but it has been great for them all year long. Uh, really seems to enjoy playing in Toronto uh, in Anaheim, had some struggles. But uh, the, the one concern I have with Anderson is, is the goals against average. It's a it's a little high. In fact, the 2.81 is the worst of his career. Uh, and so that that is a bit of a concern. But you look at his save percentage, 0.918, that one's not that far off from where he normally is. So it goes to show he's facing a lot more rubber uh, this season than in the past. And I think that's the overall concern for me. Uh, I think I give the slight edge to Tuka Rask, but it's, it's a razor-thin margin in my opinion. And if you ask me tomorrow, I might go the other way. And you know what? When we break it down then, I see a big check mark in my favor, in uh, the offense for Toronto, rather. And I think that I would rate the defenses a slight edge for Toronto as well. Uh, you see it a little bit differently. In goal, I'll give the edge to Rask as well. So based on that 2-1 to one edge, I feel comfortable in saying the Leafs will win this series by a ratio of two games to one four to two i'm calling it a six game toronto win well i think you're nuts if you think this series is going to end in six games but (laughs) having said that uh i said to you before we got on the air here that i i could change my decision going back and forth all day here um i'm going to go with boston 
for for the sole reason that I think Tuka Rask uh, can can really step up his game, and uh, if he wants to, I, I think Freddie Anderson is a consistent goalie who has done a great job. I think what he misses out on is the the dominant performances that you can get out of Tuka Rask, and uh, so I think because of that, at least for the next five minutes, I'm going to give the edge <laughs> to Boston in seven games here, um, and and I, I will stick by that. But I think uh, you know if if you ask me again tomorrow if we recorded the pod on Wednesday instead of Tuesday I might go the other way but I'll I'll, I'll put me down as a Boston in seven. All right, so we've disagreed on the on the eastern side so far. Let's see if that continues with the Metropolitan Division analysis. Washington versus Columbus in the regular season. Washington defeated Columbus three out of four times. The top pairings, top lines here have been in flux in Columbus all season long. So I want to start there a little bit, AJ, and uh, go through their offensive strengths. Uh, our Temi Panarin stands out as the key gunslinger out here, fitting in very nicely as a hired gun in, in Columbus and leading that offensive pack. Kind of being a, a standing out, though, because he's not the profile that the rest of their offensive key pieces have been in terms of the big physical guys who can skate. This is a team not unlike Anaheim, the way they build their offense uh, that way, but Panarin stands out as the outlier. Maybe Pierre-Luc Dubois' second guy. He's a youngster who's playing in his third season, second season rather, and finally living up to that pre- uh, that draft status where he was the third guy in the Austin Matthews-Patrick Laine draft. So he's emerged as a real good piece there too in Columbus. And rounding out that top unit, a relatively unheralded Cam Atkinson for Poolies who think that Columbus is going to go far. This guy's going to be a dark horse pick in the draft that other teams will, uh, other Poolies will not think about. But he's a guy who rounds out that top unit, holding holding onto that role for all most of the season as well. The second line here, an intriguing one, just because of the way Thomas Vanek has fit in offensively here. And uh, talk about a hired gun. He's another one that that is being a really nice fit since he was acquired at the trade deadline. Alex Wenberg is the number two center here. Boone Jenner uh, rounding out that top six. Nick Foligno is a guy, the captain of this team and the heart and soul of the club. I think you'll see him play top six minutes here, so he's worth a mention as well. On the flip side for Washington, we know it's about the OV and his mates up front, and uh, can they shake the specter of ghosts, playoff ghosts in the past? Kuznetsov and Backstrom, pretty solid one-two, maybe offensively on the offensive side of the puck, the best one-two on the offensive side of the puck, I'll say, in the in the league uh, over any other team. Uh, Tom Wilson, a strange uh, find in the top six uh, for wingers on Washington. Uh, it's worked, though. He's had a career year, and he's he's fit in nicely in terms of the, what he brings to the table, opening up the ice for his teammates there. I'm a little surprised. I'll be a little surprised to see uh, Kuznetsov start with Ovechkin in the playoffs. I li- I'd rather see them go with a tried-and-true combo of Backstrom in there. Uh, and I think Kuznetsov brings out the best in Burakovsky. So I would see, I'd like to see them flip the top two. It just speaks to the uncertainty uh, and uh, maybe the jitters that this team has that they really can't settle on who's playing with who even this late in the season because it's bounced around all year long. Yeah, well, and it, it seems to be the case in, in the bottom, you know, the bottom two lines here as well. Uh, you know, Brett Connolly, Devante smith Pelly, and Alex Chason have literally rotated through who's sitting on the bench, 
uh, on that right wing. Uh, you factor in Lars Eller, uh, Chandler Stephenson, and Travis Boyd at center. They've been doing that as well. Uh, Jay Beagle being out, I think, hurts their depth even more. So, uh, yes, you know, the top two lines, I, I think there is some question mark there, but ultimately, it's going to be those six guys, uh, whether it's Backstrom and Kuznetsov flipping. I agree they probably should, um, but irregardless, the, the top six are going to be those guys. You're not going to see anybody else get a look. And so what they can put up together def, uh, depth-wise is going to be a real question mark for me. Uh, you know, And I have similar concerns with, with Columbus, uh, you know, but I think overall they're a little bit deeper. Uh, Sonny Milano is going to get scratched for the first game, but he could come in and contribute uh, in a depth role. They do have Josh Anderson. Brandon Dubinsky is there as well. Uh, I agree. I think Nick Foligno will slide into a top six role at some point here, um, but they don't really need him uh, if they don't want to. Thomas Vanek has really been uh, a vital piece for them, and I don't think either of us expected that just because his previous mo previous uh kind of uh style of play we didn't feel fit uh the coaching uh staff there with john tortorella at the helm but it really has so far uh, been a nice addition defensively you look uh, you've got Wierinski and Seth Jones as the top pairing for Columbus. Then you go to Ian Cole, uh, who is a, a veteran of the last two Penguins runs. Uh, it looks like Marcus Nutavar is going to be healthy and bounce Jack Johnson uh, back to, to the press box here. I, I'm a little surprised by that, um, but it seems like, you know, Nutavar's offensive uh, contributions have been enough for John Tortorella to trust him more in the off, uh, in the lineup here than Jack Johnson. Johnson's not really a, a hasn't been rather a, a offensive contributor for a number of years. Fourteen points in fifteen sixteen, twenty three points uh, last year, and then just eleven this season. And so that uh, that's that's kind of a surprise to me. I think a lot of that is why most people saw Jack Johnson moving. Uh, at the trade deadline, especially when they brought in Ian Cole, but that hasn't happened. Uh, so the depth there for Columbus, though, if any of those guys struggle, you got Jack Johnson sitting right there, could be reinserted into the lineup. Uh, you know, but Washington's group isn't bad either. You know, John Carlson obviously is having having a banner year this year, uh, and he'll be a key to their offense. Uh, Matt Niskanen has a uh, has a rocket of a shot and can really contribute as well. Brooks Orpik adds a ton of physicality uh, and and defensive uh, you know sure footedness for them. I think the question is who else comes in on that, whether it's going to be Jarabek, Drews, or Bowie, but that gives them some flexibility. Uh, this is two groups that I think are, are really kind of comparable. Uh, I think the year that John Carlson is having has me giving the edge defensively to Washington, um, but again, this one's really close, uh, uh, in my opinion at least. Yeah, it's close enough that I'm going to take the other side of it, AJ. I'm going to say that uh, in terms of the number of of players who can really make a strong contribution i'm going to give columbus the edge uh, you know a lot about ian cole i think he's going to provide a lot of intelligence on on the pits on the uh, other side because he's so familiar with the opponents in washington and uh, so that could be an additional kind of a 
intangible uh, asset. David Savard, a uh, guy who has another cannon of a shot here. Seth Jones really emerged as a top blue liner. Warensky as well. So again, like the Leafs, I, I, I profiled the top two defensemen there. I think that the top two guys on, uh, on Columbus are the equal of anybody outside of John Carlson and, and by a wide margin, maybe more than, than anybody else other than John Carlson on the other side. And the depth that they have is a little more consistent on the Columbus side and it's reflected by the, t- the fact that they played a better button-down type of playoff-style hockey down the stretch than Washington did. The, maybe that's more of a reflection on the goaltending, and we'll slide into that discussion a little bit. Sergei Bobrovsky really found his great game in the month of March. He had a couple of so-so starts to end the season, but I think he was pretty near the top of his game for much of the month. When you can't really say the same thing about Braden Holtby, there's been a lot of questions about his play, and he even lost a lot of playing time to his backup in terms in Philadelphia. Grubauer to the point where there was some conjecture that maybe Grubauer would get some starts in the postseason. I think that's a bit of a stretch and I think they got to pin their hopes on the guy that's been there for the lion's share of the last several years in Holtby and hope that he can really ramp it up but right now I see a big edge for Bobrovsky and Columbus in the goaltending situation. Here's my question mark for Bobrovsky. It's, uh, it's looking at his playoff experience. You look, he's played 18 games, uh, started 14 of them, a 3-10 record uh, with a .887 save percentage. The playoffs have not been kind to Sergei Bobrovsky. Maybe he's been tired down the stretch, um, but he has really, really struggled in the postseason. But to your point, there are serious question marks. Is Braden Holby actually going to not start game one of this series uh you know the the coach there said uh he knew who he was going to start but hadn't told either of the guys yet as of yesterday now maybe he told them shortly thereafter um but i really have to wonder if philip grubauer has maybe done enough and look the recent you know the the early exits have to be considered a factor here in making this decision uh you know if they want to try something else uh you know obviously hope he hasn't hasn't worked uh, a great regular season netminder for them uh, but has you know the postseason just has not worked out for them so maybe they do actually consider Grubauer getting a look uh, for Pulis out there I wouldn't touch Brain Holpe with a 10-foot pole only because you don't know it, there, there is a serious possibility I do think Paul ultimately I think you're right I do think they'll go with Holpe but you don't know and there's a distinct possibility that Philip Grubauer could get at least uh, a, a start especially if hope struggles in the game i think uh the you know fans will be calling for grubauer to get uh the next game if if hope struggles and so i would avoid him in, in pools for sure um, but barbrowski as i said has had his own struggles in the postseason so uh this one's really uh, an interesting one to watch and it'll be very interesting to see whether it's today or tomorrow, uh, who they announce as the starting netminder in, in for the Capitals. And really, that's the question that leads me to make the, the call that I think Columbus is going to be the upset pick for me in six games. I just think this is one of the worst matchups Washington got, could have got in the first round. Of course, Pittsburgh would have been the other one because uh, they've haunted the Caps forever. But uh, Columbus will be the team that prevails here just because I think the physicality they bring to the table, the depth they have on the blue line, and the edge in goal primary factors in me making this call yeah i think for me uh man i was back and forth on this one as well but i'm gonna go washington in seven Uh, i just think uh that that top two lines 
are just so talented. Alexander Ovechkin uh, knows what's at stake, and I think at the very least he can steal them a series here uh, and, and, and force them into the next round. Uh, and I think TJ Oshie is another X factor here. And, and because of those two guys, I think even if it is Grubauer, uh, I, I think they'll they'll get through uh, into the next round. And I think Bobrovsky will continue his postseason struggles. And finally, we come to the series that you will probably dread a little bit, the matchup of the, the teams in the state of Pennsylvania with Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. The regular season, though, showed that Pittsburgh had very little difficulty on the whole sweeping the regular season series. But, AJ, I'm going to let you talk about the forwards before I chime in here. I'm curious to think how you break break these uh, formidable units down against one another. Yeah, I think one move that they made just late here in the season is actually going to help them a lot more than people might think. And that's Michael Raffle taking the right wing on the top line with uh, Couturier and Giroux. Uh, I think he can add a real physical style play, a net front presence. Uh, you know, I think he has a very similar Patrick Hornquist style of play. Uh, you know, Nolan Patrick has been phenomenal. Uh, I really like Travis Konechny. I think he could challenge Oscar Limbaum for, for second line minutes here. Uh, for me, the biggest problem for the Flyers uh, on their line combinations is the fourth line. And I think that's a question they've been trying to answer all season long. You know, if you look on our depth chart there, we have a full fifth line listed. Uh, and <laughs> any one of those guys could slot in on that fourth line. Uh, Valtteri Filpula, I think, uh, is a little bit, uh, again, long in the tooth uh, to, to really uh contribute here on a consistent basis hasn't scored a goal since march 17th uh, that's a nine game stretch just one assist over over that run uh, and so the outside of really Giroux uh and you know that top line I, I think i have some serious question marks simmons has been very streaky throughout the year he has hot and cold stretches uh on the flip side you've got the penguins basically with uh, a similar recipe to what's worked the last couple of years. You've got Crosby playing with Gensel and Rust, two speedy guys who are willing to go into the, the tough areas and draw defenders to them. And, and that frees up Crosby uh, remarkably to get into open areas on the ice. Uh, Carl Haglin has been a, a, a great contributor this year. I had some serious question marks about him going into the season. Uh, I think I even called for them to potentially trade him, uh, you know, and shed that four million dollar cap hit but he's had a great year uh, i like the move of patrick hornquist on the malkin line but i think rust and hornquist really could be flip-flopped either way uh and and could play with either crosby uh or malkin i think the key is going to be Derek brassard i think it's trending towards him being back and the nice part about having him back is it gives you a third line of Connor Sheary, Derek Broussard, and phil kessel uh, that's arguably the best third line uh in in the league right now uh, and I, and I think they can really contribute. And then you've got a fourth line that constructs very similar, uh, uh to a, a grinder line in, in Sheehan, Kunako and Aston Reese, but they also have some speed and can contribute in a lot of ways too. So, uh, for me, I, I, I obviously am going to give the edge to Pittsburgh. Like I just said, that's the best third line in hockey. Uh, I just, I said arguably, but I'll go out there and I'll say hands down the best third line in hockey. I, I'll challenge anybody on Twitter to tell me your third line combo that's better than that group. Uh, and so uh, that's how I see it shaking out. There's just more depth there for Pittsburgh. And so I give them a, a, a pretty sizable edge in the forward combinations. Paul, what about you? I think Philadelphia has a huge edge at center. 
at center? No, I <laughs> thought insane. Just, just wanted to see if you were listening. No, no, maybe in ten years they will when Crosby and Malkin are out of hockey. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you know what? They've developed a pretty nice top top two guys in Philadelphia. In all seriousness, the youngsters Couturier and Patrick. Uh, Couturier really found his game this year, and Patrick in the second half of the season. So their offense is going to be guided through the middle of the ice, and those two guys for the next ten years. And uh, they can take some real solace in that, two solid youngsters. But boy, oh boy, Pittsburgh on the other side has the best one-two punch at center by miles in hockey. And that should guide them to a sizable advantage, as you suggested, on the forward ranks. To me, I'm a little bit concerned about the depth in the Flyers' forward ranks. Giroux certainly uh, merits consideration as the, the comeback player in the Eastern Conference, had, topping the 100-point mark and outpacing his longtime rival Sidney Crosby in that regard. I'll, I'll get that little dig in for Flyer fans, <laughs> I guess. But uh, you know what? I, I'm a little bit concerned about the state of flux that the Flyers forwards are in. Michael Raffle and Oscar Lindbaum, neither one of them played too much in the top six roles. Konechny and Wayne Simmons did hold those places much of the season here. Konechny's play real ta- really tailed off in the month of March. Simmons is a guy, I think, who could be moved in to a top six role and see a lot of ice time in a series that could be really a physical one and he really carries the flag in that regard for the Flyers and really an offensive threat as well on the special teams so that's the way I see the offensive breakdown here I do give Pittsburgh a big edge like you said their third line with Kessel she and uh, sorry Kessel Sheary and Brassard I agree with you it is a potent group and and the fly the Flyers don't have the ability to do what Pittsburgh did and really put a superstar into the center of three different lines and and really be the centerpieces here no other team in hockey can do that that's really what's going to be the 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 Pittsburgh uh modus operandi to hopefully get a third Stanley Cup from your perspective but uh, a <laughs> real challenge for Philadelphia to deal with that kind of a situation up front how do you see the defenses breaking down so I actually think these uh, are similarly constructed uh, defensive here. You know, you've got Chris Letang in kind of your main uh, offensive contributing piece. And I think you have that on the other side in in, in Provorov, uh, or, or rather Goss's Bear. And then you have, you know, Provorov is kind of your, your, your Justin Schultz contributes somewhat consistently. Uh, a couple other guys that can, can, can trip in here. So I do think they're actually pretty evenly matched uh, in this grouping. Uh, I've been a little surprised to see Johnny Oduya not really get any looks here uh, for playtime. So overall, I I think it's a pretty evenly matched uh, group. And I think the the edge for me is the experience factor here. You've got Latang, Schultz, Mata, and Dumoulin who have all been through this before. Uh, They know what to expect. Uh, and and I, I think that's really the only edge is the experience factor because they're very similarly constructed groups, in my opinion, on, on the blue line. Yeah, I think Philadelphia has got something going on the back end here with the number of youngsters who are playing a lot of minutes for them on the back end. But really, if you were to go on the stats alone, you would look at Philadelphia and say, hmm, I would think I would give them the edge. But you can't discount the experience that the Philadelphia group, the Pittsburgh group has rather in this circumstance. So the main names that you 
mentioned on their back end, certainly worth consideration in your playoff pools, at least in, as far as Latang, Schultz, and Mata are concerned, for sure. Demoulin, uh, I think he benefits from playing with Lang, but I don't put him in the same class as the other three guys offensively. But they rounded out with Oleksiak, Hunwick, and Ruedel, guys that have all uh, had a bit of a cup of coffee in a in a key minutes in the postseason before. So I, like you, uh, think that the disparity uh, on paper, which might favor Philadelphia, is not there when you consider the experience on both sides. The goaltending matchup here... It's a very one-sided one for me. Matt Murray is a guy who has a couple of Stanley Cup rings on his side of the equation and a guy who was uh, besieged by injury during the regular season. He overcame that to finish up well enough that I think he's giving them that huge edge and goal over a Philadelphia trio that just seemed they can't they haven't got it right in in the last 30 years in Philadelphia in terms of the net minding Brian Elliott looks like he's going to get the starting in the series but I'm sure we're going to see Peter Mrazek and if he was healthy Michael Neuverth might get a look too so that just tells you that nobody's really emerged for the Flyers just like nobody ever emerges in terms of Flyer <laughs> goaltending well hey I'll leave your your uh uh, scathing remarks of the Flyers netminders lie. I agree with everything you said there. I have some concerns about Matt Murray. Uh, he just hasn't looked uh, on top of his game since coming back from that injury. Uh, you look at his numbers in those eight games back, 4-3-1 and one, with a 3.38 goals against average and a .898 save percentage. Uh, it's simply not good enough, in my opinion. Uh, he needs to be better if they want a three-peat here. Uh, the the question mark here is you know if Elliot struggles they could go to Mrazic if Mrazic struggles they could potentially go to Newverth if he gets healthy um they at least have options there in in Philadelphia if Murray struggles the Penguins are stuck and are just going to have to out fence uh offensively outduel another team you are not going to see Casey DeSmith get into a game here maybe if one gets out of hand uh, and he comes in for you know a, a relief but he's not starting a game that's for sure and so Matt Murray's recent struggles have me a little bit concerned uh, about this I think overall the rest of uh, the Penguins uh, team kind of uh, overshadows it for me uh, can make up for some of those concerns but as far as long-term uh, postseason success here Matt Murray is my biggest concern about this Pittsburgh team well, and if that's your biggest concern, I think you give the check marks elsewhere to the Penguins. I, I still think they have an edge, even with the concerns you expressed in the goaltending. So to me, it should be a fairly easy win for the Penguins. But I think emotion is going to play a factor and maybe make it a little more narrow than most people want to think. And I'll say Pittsburgh in six games. How do you see it? I'm going to go Pittsburgh in five. Uh, I, I I rely a lot on the fact that the, the regular season matchup has favored Pittsburgh. Now, I, I will be up front. They weren't blowout games by any means. There were a lot of close, tough wins, uh, which is not usually what you would expect out of the Penguins. You know, they're not... Um, they're not necessarily a grinded out team. You look at them as more of a finesse team. Um, but every time they've played the Flyers this year, they've been able to dig in, grind out a win in, in close games and a couple overtime games. Uh, so I do think uh, that'll help them. And, and ultimately, I think they can get get it done uh, mostly at home and then get the one on the road as well. And uh, we want to give thanks to our primary sponsor all season long. FanDuel has been such a strong supporter of our, what we're trying to do here. And we are very happy because, uh, you know what, we talk about the fact that over two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing on FanDuel. And we have done some of the winning ourselves. And to take advantage of our special offer for new users, we invite you to sign up. 
at fanduel.com slash rw of course these contests are void we're prohibited we want to spend a couple of minutes talking about dfs strategies in the playoffs aj for my part you're obviously looking at team stacks here so i i think it's really key to get the top lines and the top d pairings and certainly the starting goalies right and really stack them up in the, in the most favorable of circumstances here so you you'll want to keep an eye on the way rotowire lays out the, the rosters and uh, pile on in terms of uh, one or two teams here and building your squads look for the most part picking the goalie is not going to be easy um you know it's it's one of the benefits in in a lot of ways uh during the regular season that usually you can find a matchup uh where it's a little one-sided you're you're not really going to find that in the playoffs here and so uh i think things to target are are guys that um have high save percentages that you know you're goals are going to happen. Um, so a guy that's seeing a little bit more rubber, but is able to kind of control the puck is kind of where I'm targeting. Uh, honestly, I think Freddie Anderson might be a good option there. Uh, yes. You know, his goals against is a, is a little high, but he sees a decent amount of rubber has walked away with a lot of wins and, and a decent save percentage there. So, um, that's kind of what I'm looking for. And it's not going to be easy to pick that. And then from there, you know, that's going to decide what you can do with the rest of your lineup based on how much you have to spend for those goaltenders. All right, let's give a nod to the stud of the week, maybe the stud of the season. When you look at what Taylor Hall has done, finally emerging and living up to the uh, high draft position that he enjoyed in his draft year, he really graduated with honors this year in terms of NHL emergence, uh, outpacing his teammates in scoring by the widest margin of any player in the NHL. By definition, that tells me that he should be a serious contender for the Hart Trophy, and, and I'd like to see a guy like him win it because, by definition, it's the most valuable to your team. And when you're talking about scoring exploits, this guy's scoring exploits, as I said, outpaced his teammates by a wider margin than anybody else in the game. So my vote would go to him. Yeah, I think that's a great call. He's been, uh, as you said, easily the best player on his team all season. I think the Devils would certainly uh, be a lottery team and potentially a high percentage uh, one at that without him. You know, the obvious argument, counter argument for a couple of the other top scorers in the league are going to be, you know, McDavid led the league in scoring. Um, and was the best player on his team as well, but didn't get them anywhere. Um, unfortunately, that's right. That's right. You know, that's the case there. Giroux, uh, again, makes a, a similar argument. They're a playoff team. Kucherov could be there too, but both these guys have a little bit more help. Obviously, Malkin and Kessel are up there in the scoring race. They have not only each other, but Sidney Crosby on that team. I think for me, the one other guy I maybe look at here uh, for most valuable to his team is going to be Nathan McKinnon few more points in Hall uh, doesn't have a, a, a ton of backup, um, but I, I think Taylor Hall would be a phenomenal selection here. And in terms of the rant of the week, boy, oh boy, in this neck of the woods in the Toronto area, playoff seedings is uh, an issue that's been talked about. It's a shame when you look around the NHL in both the East and Western Conference, some of the top teams in the regular season are going to be up by the wayside by the end of the second round. And so that's why I'd like to see the playoff seedings matter more. The regular season needs to count for 
something. If a team was seventh in the league like the Leafs were, why are they getting a top three team in the league as their first round foe? And by the same token, Boston can't be pleased to get the Leafs. They should be expecting a team that maybe is much lower ranked than the Toronto club is. So that's just an example on the eastern side. The examples exist on the western side too with uh, the likes of Winnipeg and Minnesota matching up. And certainly Nashville has a bit of a tough out in the first round as well. So uh, these teams should have been more handsomely rewarded for their pick uh, for their playoff foes. And I'd like to see a seeding of one to eight in each side. The regular season should count for more. And right now it simply doesn't. It's the one sport that doesn't get it right in terms of the postseason playoff matchups. Yeah, I think what's interesting is the argument for how they did it now is to get these like rivalry games uh, in the in the first round. And they've definitely accomplished that with with Pittsburgh playing Philadelphia, Toronto playing Boston. But, the you know, if you look at the Eastern Conference as an example, uh, you would still end up with Washington playing Philadelphia. That's by no means uh, a bad rivalry. Toronto would have matched up with Pittsburgh. Uh, I think most of the the non-playoff uh, team fans would want to watch that one. Uh, <laughs> you and, and I so, might find that interesting. <laughs> not, no, I, I'll save that. We can do that in the Eastern Conference Finals. <laughs> I'll save that one. I don't want that in the first round. Um, but to my point, that would be a great first-round matchup. On the Western Conference side, uh, you know, you get Winnipeg against the Kings, Vegas against San Jose, Anaheim against Minnesota. Yes, maybe you got a few better matchups. I, I could see an argument made in the Western Conference and maybe you got a couple better ones. Um, but I think the fact that potentially you're looking at top teams uh, in their in their conferences being out after the second round, and I don't really think that's what you want. Uh, if the regular season mattered and everything worked like it's supposed to based on seeding, a Tampa Bay-Boston Eastern Conference final would be would be solid, um, but that's not going to happen. It'll be one of those teams against somebody else based on how everything shook out. Exactly, and well, it was a bit of a lengthy preview, but we're not going to be with you every week in the play- playoffs. What we're going to do is meet up with you at the end of each round, so we went a little deeper in terms of the commentary today. hope you enjoy the analysis, and uh, look out for our next episode of PuckCast at the end of the first round where we're going to tally how we performed and it's interesting that we were in agreement on the west side but quite a bit of disagreement on the east so we'll see how it plays out in any case we invite you to remember to send your comments or questions on twitter follow me paul bruno at statsman 22 and you can follow aj at aj shoals 24 we hope you enjoyed this and circle back when we get to the second round of the postseason so stick with us and you'll get the latest news and our tips to stay out of the competition in your fantasy contest so long everybody 